Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Uh, David Horner is no stranger to Southbridge, but every time he's here, he brings the truth um, and he brings a challenge. And so let's give him a Southbridge welcome this morning. Thanks. Thanks. I can't, I can't get Scott to go out of town enough to be able to get back as often as I'd like. So uh, as he's in Panama, uh, I, I look back and when I was last year, there was a couple from Panama who were here on break and then were going back. And so Scott just followed them. I mean, it worked out well for him, but uh, praise God for him being able to be there and being a part of what they're doing, and I'm blessed to be able to be here with you. He asked if I wanted to just kind of pull out one of my favorite sermons and preach it, or if I wanted to get in the series that he was preaching through First Peter. That's really not even subtle pressure. You know, you want to do something that's not going to cost you anything at all, or you want to get in line and preach the Word of God. You know, it's like, okay, okay, okay. No, but it's a blessing to be able to come and look together to First Peter. And today I get the passage in chapter 4, beginning verse 12 through 19. And so we can keep things in sequence and, and move right on through. And as Easter's coming up, there's so much to cover in so many ways in the Scripture that we want to just keep right on track. So I invite you to turn. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. It's on page 1139, right here. That's what it says. It's not my Bible. That's okay. Let's begin reading where Peter is writing a letter to the dispersion. That means that persecution had arisen in the church, and believers had been shipped out everywhere. They were trying to escape what was going on in Jerusalem and the surrounding environments. So he's writing a letter saying to these folks, hang in there. God's got a great plan at work, and as you've been watching this book unfold over the last several weeks, we pick it up now in verse 12, where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Lord, open our eyes as we look to the scriptures again today. Every time we come, there's a fresh new insight. There's an opening of our eyes to things that we need to know either about you, about ourselves, or the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And today, Lord, there is this encouragement that comes in the midst of some hard truth-telling that we can hear and understand that that suffering is a part of the deal when we agree to follow Christ, and it's not something to be pushed away or avoided at all costs, but to be embraced as a reason for rejoicing and blessing. Lord, that's counterintuitive to us, and so we need your Spirit to open our eyes to these truths 
and how we view these things in the midst of our culture will be different from other cultures, but the truth is the same in all of them. That these have been granted to us through Christ to build us up to maturity in Him. And so we ask you to do that for us and in us, for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, let's start with a basic premise. Honesty is the best policy, right? Yeah, sometimes. Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. Could it be? Could it not? I mean, if you're watching the ads on television for the newest drug that's come out, you know, they'll say, you know, buy this drug because it'll take care of this and this and this. And then in very quick words, it'll also give you a heart attack. It'll make you have hemorrhoids. You'll have horrible blood pressure. You will have diarrhea for years. And we're doing this. Now, buy our product. You're going like, okay, that's not that good to make you want to go buy it. I'm thinking, like, I think I'd rather have the disease than all the side effects of the medicine. But it's truth. And honesty is the best policy, you know, that at least is forced upon them. They've got to say that to be able to produce the product. But what happens when that comes into the church and, and we find ourselves in the middle of a culture of churches trying to swim upstream? We're not popular in the culture anymore. That, that may be a surprise for some of you. But we're not, we're not the darlings of the culture any longer if we ever were in our lifetimes. So what happens? Honesty is the best policy gets sort of pushed aside, and we find movements among Christians, particularly in the West, uh, movements of people who are saying, well, you know what, if we, if we downplay this part of the gospel, and if we maybe change this piece of what belonging to Jesus was like, and we maybe adjusted our hard, fast positions on morality and ethics and, and even the way of salvation, if we do that, maybe we would get a better hearing so that we could come in later and then tell them the truth if we get around to doing that. Hmm. Methinks that smells like compromise, but I'm not sure what you think about that. But what Paul, uh, Peter is saying here in the passage this morning is, is you who are believers out there in the world, you who are standing for Christ in the middle of darkness all around you. Here's, here's a heads up. They're not going to love you for that where you're living. You're, you're not going to be applauded and you're not going to have your, your back patted by them, commending you for being countercultural. That's not the way this works. And so what happens is that in our culture, you've got folks who are beginning to do sort of what's called the prosperity gospel, that we're going to have, you know, church light, Christianity without all the, the trappings of it, like believing things. And so we're going to have a trouble-free promise that we give you. You're not going to have to repent of anything that you're doing. You just add Jesus to an already full life, and it's going to just be more wonderful. And you can guarantee that, that it will be a pain-free existence. It will be the kind of existence that brings to happiness and success. And after all, what does God want but to make you happy? Now, let's all gather together, and let's sing to this God that we've just made up who likes that kind of thing. No, that's not honest. First of all, it betrays the gospel as if the gospel were something we could mess around with and change, or that God's eternal truth and his, his essential character can be adjusted to fit the culture. And folks, that's exactly what we're finding in our culture. And when people don't like what you're saying and they don't approve of what you believe, they have now the rights, particularly you're watching it happen on college campuses, even in political contexts. 
where you get shouted down if you're saying something that's not PC in the college context. And, and the presidents and the leaders of these universities are going like, you know what, we don't know, we don't know exactly what to do here, so we're just caving. And we're not doing anything about it. In the middle of all that, Peter comes to us in the church and he says, rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Peter, do, do we get a, a roundtable discussion as to whether or not we agree with you on that? <laughs> Can we maybe have a little dialogue about whether this suffering thing is something that you really want to advocate? Is, is that what's going on here? And Peter's going, no, no, this is just the way it is. This is what it, it comes down to. In chapter 1, he's talked about the fact that when we follow Christ, there is joy inexpressible and full of glory. And we're going, yes. I love that part. Wonderful. Why, where do I sign up for the joy inexpressible and full of glory class? I want that one. <clears throat> he says, now, when you suffer, don't be surprised. Don't look at things that are hard coming at you as if something strange were happening to you. But instead of doing that, rejoice. Because it's evidence that you are blessed. Okay, so that must be some kind of like upper-level Christianity that I'm not familiar with because I'm looking for what makes me happy, what does what I would like to be done in my life with my faith helping me kind of just be at ease and content, and I'm not looking for trouble. Peter's saying, well, maybe you need to reconsider what it means to really follow Christ because you're going to be at odds with the world. Now, how do we unpack that? Well, there are three different ways in these verses, verses 12 to 19, where he says we have been blessed by God with truth. One having to do with suffering, one having to do with joy or rejoicing, and one having to do with being blessed. The latter two, unfortunately, because of the way times work when you're doing an exposition of a text, are not going to get as much attention as the, the suffering part. I'm sorry about that. Let me go ahead and do a disclaimer. Honesty is the best policy. You're going to get more suffering talk than you're going to get joy and blessing talk this morning. Some of you are going like, be good. We'll get out of here by 1110. He won't even have a chance to get into the other stuff. No, we're just going to look at it together and see what that looks like. But what happens when we start talking about suffering that comes from our fellowship with Christ. That's really how he starts this passage. He says, you're, you're going to have it come. So here is, is the deal. When you follow Christ and when you enter into partnership with him and you're in koinonia and you're fellowship with him and you're sharing in life with Christ, you're going to suffer. Yeah, well, Peter kind of sounds eccentric there. Uh, that's sort of an overstatement. Well, listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is there like a condition clause or something in there? Yeah. If you are in Christ and you desire to live a godly life, do we want to do that? Yeah. You'll be persecuted. You got any other verses? Well, yeah, we'll look at them as we go through. But it doesn't paint a pretty picture of dishonest representations of the Christian faith. You come to Jesus and life will be a bowl of cherries. The abundant life will be yours. We love John 10.10. 10. He has come that we have life and have it in abundance. Yes! And that abundance includes stuff like suffering and hardship and trials. And that's not abundance from my perspective. He says, no, because those are the things that actually produce joy and blessing. 
Let's walk through and let me explain it to you. He says, because there are different reasons for our suffering. Now, there are things that we suffer and go through times of trial that have nothing to do with our stand for Christ. So we need to at least acknowledge that Peter sees that, and he, he states that up front. He says, here's, here's what we're going to have to recognize, that sometimes we're suffering because we do stupid things. And for those of you moms and dads out there who don't like your children who hear the word stupid, I'm sorry, it's, it's in the Bible. Uh, but that's what, that's what it really accounts for. We have failed ourselves, and there are consequences for our failures. And so he lists a couple of them here uh, in, in verse 15. He says, if you suffer because you're a murderer, guess what? You brought that on yourself. If, if you find that you are suffering because you're a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, you, you brought it on yourself. This is just a part and parcel of it. If, and we could add to that a whole category of other things that we, by our own failures, are bringing consequences upon ourselves that have nothing to do with what Peter's talking about, suffering for our stand for Christ. And so if we make moral decisions and bring moral corruption into our lives, and then we suffer the consequences of that, that's on us. That's not suffering for the sake of the gospel. Or if we find ourselves in positions where we're, where we're addicted to various things and, and we've, we've made choices that have to do with, with obsessions with the material world around us and, and then we suffer the consequences of those things. That's on us. We, we get those consequences coming our way. Or if we have managed life deficiently and are praying God to bring a miracle and get us out of these things. We can, we can do that, but when you don't manage your household well and, and things are, are messing up with, with what's going on around you, that's on us. If we are not managing our tempers well and we suffer the consequences or our tongue says stuff that we didn't manage properly or, or we find ourselves with our reputation sullied because we made bad choices about ethics and integrity, Money, whatever we make, we bring a lot of these consequences on ourselves. That's just a part and parcel of it. And so he says, that's, that's really not what I'm talking about. If you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an uh, evildoer or, or whatever, he says, that's not what I'm, I'm talking about here. So let's make that clear. It's not because you suffer and bring things on yourself. That's just, that's just hard. He says, secondly, and he doesn't speak to that specifically here, but we, we understand it. It's not when we suffer because we're part of a fallen race that he's talking about here. Because some stuff just happens because we're living in a fallen world. Jesus says, was it the fault of the people that the Tower of Siloam fell on them? No, it wasn't, it wasn't because they were more evil than anybody else. Things happen like that. Uh, were the people sitting under the bridge in Florida this week, were they more evil than the people who were not sitting under the bridge? And when the bridge fell on them... I mean, no, that's just horrible. Or the students who were killed at the school or the schools. Or the folks who were going through the marketplace somewhere in the Middle East and a bomb from a car explodes and takes them out. Or a tornado wipes out a city and loss of life is significant. How do we explain all this stuff? We're living in a fallen world. Now, we didn't bring that suffering on ourselves, but being a part of the human race, living in a fallen world, that kind of stuff happens. Romans chapter 8 describes it this way, beginning in verse 19. It says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it 
in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So we're, we're part of a fallen world, and suffering comes in that fallen world. That's, again, not what Peter's talking about. Well, Horner, are you going to get to what Peter's talking about? I'm so glad you asked, <laughs> because that's where we are now. So it's not because we brought it on ourselves by things that we chose. It's not because we live in a fallen world that he's saying these things. That, that comes with suffering as a part of the human experience. Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, and he experienced all of that is with us. But he's talking about something totally different. He says, this is suffering for our faith. You have taken a stand for Christ, and as his disciple, you inevitably suffer because of that stance. That's what Peter's saying. And he's talking to people who have already been persecuted, who've already been run out of their home country, and now they're spread out over the various places he's described in, in the first couple of verses of, of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He said, now you're, you're out there, and you're in the midst of the world, and you are taking your stand for Christ there, even as you were in Jerusalem and, and the land around the places where Jesus did his ministry. And so here's the thing. You should expect, it's a part of your expectation in Christ that this is normal. Do not be surprised, verse 12, at the fiery ordeal as though something strange were happening to you. So it's not a surprise. And sometimes as Christians, we, we act like, I mean, Jesus, I mean, I've, I've followed all the rules. I have done what I was supposed to do. I went to all the seminars. I seldom miss church. I tithe. I share my faith. I read family devotion. I do all this stuff, and still hard stuff happened to me. How could that possibly be? Does God owe you a trouble-free life? Truth in advertising. No, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, Peter seems to indicate exactly the opposite of that. When you take your stand for Christ, you are embracing partnership with Christ in all things. And so a part of the expectation of being a follower of Christ is that we share in his life, which means that we also share in his sufferings. So here's what Jesus said about it himself in John 15, beginning of verse 18. Okay, here's it is. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The world is going to come after you. They hated me. You're a follower of mine. They're going to hate you. Well, that doesn't seem fair. It's not about fairness. This is about reality. This is, this is what happens. He says, so the expectation is that they're going to hate you, and it's not a strange thing that they do it, suffer because of your stand for me. It's a part and parcel with the coming. So your expectation is that this is what you should expect. If you don't experience this, that's wonderful for the time when you're not experiencing it. But don't think that God owes you a trouble-free life. That's really not the way this shakes down. So our participation 
with Christ <coughs> calls upon us to be sharers in his suffering. In verse 13, rejoice, I tell you, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That, that word share is, is the, the word from which we get participant or partnership or fellowship or sharing. It's the koinonia word. As a matter of fact, that's actually what the word is, koinonia. And, and it says that we're, we're partnered with Christ in this thing. We're sharing life with Christ. We're in fellowship with Christ because of his sufferings. And so what we have to understand is that our partnership with him brings the testimony that when you're partnered with him, you're going to experience what he experienced. So your expectation is there, your partnership or participation with him is there. And thirdly, he says that there is also an identification with Christ that brings this kind of hammer down on you as well. Y'all encouraged yet? <laughs> you know, like, is it too late to go get donuts or something? I mean, this is kind of hard here. What is, what is going on? He says, no, I just don't, I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to get a false idea. Because several years ago, I was preaching on a Sunday morning, and, and I, I was talking in the midst of the context of that sermon about the great, glorious goodness of God. You know, what a good God he is, that he is the giver of every good gift, and the, and the father of lights, and the father of mercy, and, and all this comes graciously upon his people, and, and how good God is. And, and a young woman came to me after the service, and she wasn't there to commend me for making this affirmation. When, when they say, say sometimes they hid the pastor for lunch, they don't mean that they ate with him. They just ate him. And, and I, was, I was the entree for her meal. And so she's up there and says, I cannot believe you dare to stand in front of this whole crowd of people and say again and again how good God is. Everything about my life in the last six months has declared that God is not good. I, I need to hear more. What? And she began to unfold a series of really hard, hard things. I mean, really hard. And I mean, I mean, my heart was going out to her because she had really suffered. She had grieved. She had lost some very important things in her life. And her conclusion from all that is, therefore, God cannot be good who would allow that to happen to me. You see, um, young lady, your experience does not change the reality of who God is. Is there perhaps another possibility that what your experience has been is related to something else? It, it could have been related to bad choices you've made. I didn't say that. I, I didn't have my defense up. Could have been some things that you did wrong, bob and weave, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe. Or it could have been that you're just living in a fallen world and the Father grieves with you that he had plans for you, for your welfare and good, and, and you just got blindsided by a fallen world. Could have been the case. Why didn't he protect me? It's a fallen world, and he's one day going to restore all things. But right now, even the creation itself is groaning in the labors of childbirth with the mess that goes on around you. And so it doesn't always work out the way we want in the moment that we want, but that doesn't change the fact that God is good and he's effectively working out his plan in extraordinary ways, in this light momentary affliction. Light? You call this light? No, he does. Compared to the revelation of his glory, what you're going through now, in Paul's words, is a light momentary affliction that is going to dim and fade in the light of the experience of his grace and glory in the days to come. And so there was that expectation that if, if I've identified with Christ, he owes me. He owes me. He doesn't owe you. He graciously gives you 
whatever you need to be able to take that stand and hold tight to that stand. So, so he says, your identification with me, putting it in another set of Jesus' words revealed in the Gospels, this time in Luke 21, he says in verse 17, you will be hated by all for my namesake. When you go to church, they're going to shake your hand, hug on you, and say, how was your week? But when you go out there in the world and you tell them what you actually believe, they're not all going to welcome you. As a matter of fact, if you post something on Facebook, they're going to liable to attack you, and Facebook might even censor you. <laughs> you know, you've you got to understand, this is not always lovingly embraced. George Orwell, some of you remember that name, Animal Farm, 1984? You haven't seen that book since ninth grade literature, I know. But you remember that? He was an atheist, didn't have any use for God or anything to do with God. But he said an incredible truth. He says, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those that speak it. Say it again. This is from Orwell. Now you can see it in the scriptures as well, but I'm just quoting Orwell to say this is a truth that's kind of universally recognized. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. And so as we dare to speak truth in the name of Christ and hold fast to the things that never fail, a new muzzling effect is beginning to emerge in our culture. Where we are in effect, having to deal with the fact that, that there is sort of a censoring process to the message of hope that we have in Christ. That's hard, but, but it's a part and parcel of how it works. And so you, you look at our world, and you have to conclude that, bottom line, there are probably not many of us here who could put on martyr badges and say, I've been persecuted for my faith. Some of you have. But compared to Suffering and persecution that's happened in other parts of the world, you know, maybe we need to hold up on the persecution, martyrdom ideas until we compare. Yeah, we've got to be careful about that. A few years ago, I was in South India. We were doing a pastor's conference and teaching in a seminary there. And one afternoon, we gathered together a group of the pastors who were from the city of Bangalore. And some of you may know of Bangalore from the IT world. And that's a big, big hub now of activity there. And probably most of you have been on a, a company call that was from Bangalore. And so, as a matter of fact, they, they kind of call it, you've been Bangalored, means that you've been, you know, transfer it over there. Uh, a Delta airline lady one time says, look, I'm going to talk to you here because if I don't get this straight here, they're going to send you to Bangalore. And uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, I knew that, but I didn't know you were allowed to say that on the phone. Uh, but, you know, so she's helped me figure this thing out. But we're there, and, and Bangalore is this progressive, westernized Indian city. And we're sitting in a room with 15 to 20 church planters from Bangalore. And to a man, all of them have been imprisoned for their faith and beaten from Bangalore. As a matter of fact, several of the guys had developed their ministry strategies for church planting around a jail model. Oh yeah. Okay, we're going to have a church planting seminar next week. Okay, we need half of you to agree to go to jail. So, uh, what? Uh, no, not for murder, not for evil doing, no, but for your testimony of faith in Christ. So persecution is real in other parts of the world. Kathy and I were just in Cuba a few weeks ago. Amazing things happening there. Uh, we were speaking at, with others at a pastor's conference, and there were, with the pastors and the wives, there were probably 200 people there. I'm thinking, how did they do that in Cuba? 
but they're representing a whole movement of about 1,700 churches that have been planted in recent years in Cuba. 100,000 newly baptized believers in Cuba. Fantastic. But here's the thing. A lot of the folks sitting in that room had been either harassed, jailed, or had income withheld from them because they had professed faith in Christ. Because salaries and everything are provided by the government. They don't have a line item for evangelical church plants in the Cuban budget. Go figure, right? And so, so they have to endure other things. They can't go certain levels of education. They can't do certain jobs. They can't do things because they have staked out, this is my allegiance is to Christ. Well, your allegiance is going to be to the one who is not a part of our system. You're going to have to deal with your king instead of our system of providing. So they're, they're suffering. They're, they're being persecuted because they don't have the means of making a living, and therefore it's incumbent upon us in the West to be able to help somehow or another. So we see that going on. That's more along the lines of persecution, whereas we see more of, the, of a traceable pattern, a, a progression, as it were, in, in our culture. We started off as a nation with affirmations of what we believe. It shows up in the way our laws were written. It shows up in the, in the founding documents of our nation. There's an affirmation of Christian faith. Even by deists and theists who didn't have any use for Christ himself, they recognized and affirmed biblical faith as a worldview that was valid. Affirmation over years then became toleration. Well, we don't agree with that, and we're not going to actively slam it, but, but we're just tolerating it as, as an existence of a worldview that uh, we're not going to fight it because we're in the minority and the majority of folks still believe that way. So we're going to let, let that slide. So it moves from affirmation to toleration. Then eventually the strength in numbers because of the process of this unbiblical, unchrist-centered, ungodly worldview begins to prevail. Then they get a little bolder and toleration becomes discrimination. And discrimination then changes the game. And we who are speaking a message of truth, according to Orwell, uh, the further a society drifts from it, the more the culture will hate those who speak it. We stand for something that was affirmed previous generations, then tolerated another generation, and now we're from the same things, and we're discriminated against because of what we're believing and teaching now. It's hard. It's not persecution yet. But it's a slippery little slope from discrimination to persecution. And some of us, probably even in this room, have been persecuted and have lost something of, of value or significance because we dared to take a biblical stand on something. Breakfast meeting about a month and a half ago with a, a businessman who had done a tremendous work in consulting and, and a major international corporation, I won't say where, but a major international corporation with ties in North Carolina, not to the Triangle, but elsewhere, uh, had hired him to do consulting with their employees in, in a variety of ways and was finding great effectiveness in his work and just loving what he was doing. But on the weekends, he was speaking and teaching and, and blogging some of his messages. And some of the things that he was putting out there were biblical truth that actually stated biblical truth across the board, not filtering out the unpopular pieces. And so some, one Monday morning, he comes in, his boss says, uh, excuse me, we need to talk. Uh, you're no longer employed here because of your position on issues that are contrary to the PC language of the culture in which we find ourselves as a business trying to do our work. And therefore, we're having complaints from some of our customers and some of our, 
own employees that you represent hate speech and therefore we can't have you working for our company. Lost his job. But that doesn't happen, right? It did. And this just a few months ago in our own culture. And so the progression, affirmation, then toleration, the toleration, then discrimination, then discrimination, moving to persecution. That is the process that it goes through. And so the folks here, these sojourners, these aliens, these people who were the dispersion of chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 there, these are the folks who are hearing the word from Peter saying, guys, hang in there. Because when you go through that, God does not forsake you. As a matter of fact, far from that. He's going to ask everybody who calls on his name to give an account. And that's what he says in verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. It starts with believers. He said, now there's going to be a day of judgment for everyone. He said, and if it begins with the household of God, what do you think it's going to be for those who are not of the household of God? And so in verse uh, 17, as it goes on, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So, so Peter's saying, look, get the gospel out there because everybody's going to give an account. They're going to give an account as to why they should have eternal life, and they're going to be standing with nothing to claim except their own filthy rags of unrighteousness before God who is saying, I have a holy standard and those who have eternal life in Christ must come with their sin atoned for and forgiven before they can enter into the fullness of eternal life. And he said, there are some folks who are going to come and they're going to be held accountable on that day for what they did with the provision of salvation through Jesus Christ. And those are saying, I didn't believe. I pushed aside the gospel. I thought there'd be another way. I was looking for other options. Folks, if you're here this morning and you're one of those folks, be not deceived. God says there's a day of judgment coming. The time of judgment is beginning, he says, and it will be on that day when Christ comes. And so don't be left thinking that you're going to be able to get by on your own righteousness. Because after all, you ain't that righteous. <laughs> I'm not. And I have no stand, nor does any other professor of believer in Christ have a standing of our own. It is what Christ has done for us to pay the penalty for our sin for us, to stand on our behalf so that when we stand before God and there's a time of judgment, he will say, by what reason do you have any part with me? Why do you even think you belong to me when you've lived a life of open rebellion and, and defiance of everything that I've taught you and, and revealed to you? Why can you even think that I would let you into my presence forever? Because Jesus. Did you say amen? I thought I heard amen. I was, I was thinking it was out there somewhere. Because Jesus paid my debt. I deserved to be cast out for all eternity, but Jesus took my penalty upon himself. He was my substitute, and he paid the debt that I owed. The only reason I'm here is because he did that, rose again, and invited me to trust in him to have not just forgiveness of sin, but the new life that comes with that. That's why I'm here. Come on in. And then those who reject it, who do not obey the gospel of God, the ungodly, the sinner who has no hope there, they will be judged as well. But there will be no way that they can say, because I trusted Christ, if they haven't. So if you're, if you're waiting for something, don't. Get this right. But now he's 
back to the point that he's really making here. He said, this, this whole matter of taking your stand for Christ, the judgment of that and the accounting of it would begin with us. How you doing? Are you telling the truth in all of its ramifications in the way you're living your life? In the way you're professing your faith in the trustworthiness of Christ? In the way you're becoming an avid follower of Christ in all aspects of your life? Or are you beginning to demonstrate that you've got sort of a, what I've, I've called Facebook faith? If somebody puts something really kind of weird online and you just kind of go, yeah, like you do? How can you like that? That's contrary to everything you stand for. Oh, how do you erase that? You know, well, if I put something up there that's really boldly biblical and, and is clearly taught in the scriptures and it's consistent with the character of God, they're going to think I'm some kind of religious fanatic. I don't want to be put in that pool. Next thing you know, they're going to think I'm an all right clanner. I mean, what? No, I can't, I can't really state biblically what I believe. <clears throat> they're going to hate me. They're going to accuse me of hate speech. And what did Jesus say in this whole thing? Of course they are. And your point? <laughs> They're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to discriminate against you. All that's part of it. So he's, he's saying it's gonna, this judgment is going to begin at the household of, of God. It is going to be what I'm doing to help you get to the place where your faith is pure. Now, in chapter 1, of 1 Peter, in verse 7, there's a great passage that says this. He says, the tested genuineness of your faith. It's a great language. The tested genuineness of it. More precious than, than gold that perishes as though it's tested by fire. This genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How is God going to prove the genuineness of our faith? He puts it through the test of fire. Now, chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 4, verse 12 hang together there. Don't be surprised when the fire gets hot. How does the, the gold refiner refine the gold? Puts the gold into a melting pot, fires the pot, the gold melts, becomes a liquid instead of a solid. And as it becomes a liquid, gold is heavier than most anything else, and so it goes to the bottom of the pot, and all the other elements, all the other impurities rise to the top. And the goldsmith's job to get to pure gold is to skim off all the impurities that come to the surface. So the fire has heated it up, the impurities come to the surface, the pure gold remains at the bottom, and he knows that he's done his job thoroughly, correctly, when he can look into the surface of the gold that's melted, and there are no more impurities floating around the surface. And when he looks into that pure gold, he can see a reflection of his face. Unimpaired, unmarred undefiled. God is saying to us, look, I want to refine you as gold is refined. And that means that sometimes the fire is going to have to be hot in your life to melt you down and to have all the impurities come to the top. And that process by which I'm transforming you from one stage of glory to the next, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about. He says, that's going to allow those things to come to the surface and be skimmed away. I want you to be pure, holy, 
and righteous in all of your ways. And so therefore, I'm not afraid to use fire because the purity and the reality and the essence of who you have become in Christ will not be wiped out. You will be able to stand firm. So therefore, I am going to call upon you to give an account for how you're handling all this by staying there when the fire comes. Don't be surprised. Don't get mad at me for doing it. It's evidence that I'm loving you and looking to preserve in you something of the visage of Christ when he looks into your life and sees the reflection of his own face in your heart. We're going to get to joy, David? Are we going to get there? Yeah, it's now time. Rejoice, he says. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. Suffering is inevitably going to come and we're always going to be confronted with pain as long as we're living in a fallen world, as long as we're taking a stand for Christ in the middle of all that. But he says, here's the unconditional charge. You rejoice in the Lord when that fiery trial comes. Paul says it in a different way in Philippians 4. He just says, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Not rejoice in the Lord when it's really, really going well. Give thanks in all things. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I don't think they got it. Again, I say, what? Rejoice. And so he says here, rejoice when you get to go through this. It is evidence to you <clears throat> that the Father in heaven loves you enough that he trusts you to endure the fire. That he is doing a good work in you. And he's not going to stop until it's done. That's how much he loves you. Don't be ashamed of your calling to glorify his name. You take your stand with Christ in the midst of a fallen world and a world filled with sinful people bringing consequences on themselves. On themselves, You stand firm. And then when you suffer for it, rejoice that it is evidence that I'm with you in that whole process. And then you make this uncompromised commitment to just keep going, to continue in the direction of living for my praise. Just a couple of pages before Peter so the book of James. If you've got a Bible with you, just turn to chapter 1 real quickly, verses 2 and 3. Because we've already had Paul talking about it. We've already had Peter talking about it. We've had Jesus talking a lot about it. And now we've got James to bear witness to the same truth. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, <coughs> the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. God's working in us to produce joyful circumstances in which we can say, God, I don't, I don't know how long this is going on. I don't know how deep the burn is going to go. But I rejoice that you are working in me to produce completeness in Christ and holiness that reflects the beauty of Christ. Then he finishes up this passage by saying, look, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Not the way I see it, Lord. <laughs> Doesn't feel like blessing. Trust me. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests in you. It's just evidence that if the enemy takes enough trouble to mess with you and the world around you sees you as a threat and truth spoken through you and light shining through you and salt eking out through you into the culture around you causes them to respond negatively to you, then 
just be assured that your Father who is in heaven is blessing you with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life as proofs of genuine faith in you that he can say, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. So he's calling us. Not to go around inciting people to persecute us. That's not, that's not what this is about. I'm not suffering enough. I need to go just say some obnoxious things to people and get them mad at me. No, that's not what he's saying. You live godly lives in Christ Jesus and it will happen. You will run contrary to the culture. But God says, when you do that, you're blessed. So rejoice and endure the trials when they come because they're going to come from a God who is looking to produce in you the sweetness of the character of Christ. So you sojourners, you aliens, you dispersed people living as light and salt in a very dark and tasteless world, stand up and be who you've been called to be. And the Father in heaven will be glorified and the Son will be exalted. And when he is raised up, what will happen? All will be drawn to him. And one day, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. And we get to share in the sweetness of that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We're so blessed. Beyond measure, we're blessed that we get to stand for Christ and share in everything about him. Lord, because we share in the suffering it doesn't in any way take away the joy. It doesn't take away the power. It doesn't take away the peace. It doesn't take away any of the other aspects of it. And so, Father, it's not just about the suffering, but we share in everything. So may we never push aside, get surprised at, or try to avoid taking a stand that would cause us to endure some, some hard things. May our testimony be clear, pure, speaking the truth, doing so with love and grace and keeping our eyes fixed on the throne where we see Christ high and lifted up. Lord, may we do that to the praise of your name until he comes again for us. May we live as citizens of heaven in the middle of a fallen world and live for your praise. For Christ's name we pray, amen.